from Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whenever you happen to be listening to our podcast, uh, we welcome you. And I'm glad to have you aboard. Um, I, this is Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, today, <clears throat> we're covering a really important, um, not talked about subject. Um, with the, the coronavirus and sheltering in place, um, there have been a lot of issues across the board from economic to Healthcare availability to um, you know uh, fear or or actually succumbing to the illness itself. Um, one of the things that has kind of gone off radar is um, LGBT youth. Um, many of them who are out to their parents and out in school, getting supportive, have moved home and are in safe, protective environments. Maybe even safer than they might have been because they're not subject to um, some bullying and some uh, uh, things that, that could be going on. But in another arena, there are LGBT youth who are closeted at home, um, who are unsupportive at home, who are basically abused at home, and their shelter in place could be something very, very different. So uh, today we are going to discuss that. Our um, very special guest is uh, Jason Ciotto, who is the author of a book called LGBT Youth in American Schools. And um, his book is incredibly informative, full of data and facts about the LGBT youth experience in school, um, you know, and in foster care and across the board. Um, so we're going to talk to him about that um, aspect of what's going on now and get his insight into the plight of LGBT youth across the board. Um, also on board today is none other than my esteemed uh, co-host and, and uh, expert journalist, Brody Lebeck. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Um, looking forward to talking to Jason. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening to our listeners where you are. Um, yeah, so I thought I would uh, just start a little bit of what's going on in the world with our favorite president of the United States and host of the reality show from hell, Donald Trump. So in a speech today, matter of fact, not even an, probably an hour ago at the Ford Motor Car Company uh, in Detroit, Michigan, Trump tells the audience and the reporters uh, while he's giving his speech that um, the company founded by a man named Henry Ford, good bloodlines, good bloodlines. Now, given Henry Ford's history as an anti-Semitic, okay, coupled with that very thought about pure bloodlines was uh, a key critical core component to uh, the Nazi elite's dogma and ideology and, and Hitler's and 
Henry Ford and anti-Semitism and everything going on. It's just like, Mr. President, really? But he didn't quite stop there, okay? He got asked about, you know, again, raising the issue with mail-in ballots, quoting the president. We don't want anyone to do mail-in ballots, which caused a colleague of mine to wryly observe, well, I'm sure that the members of the U.S. Armed Forces will be thrilled with that decision. And then another question from another one of my colleagues in the White House press corps. He asked the president, could you just take us through your thought process of why you decided not to wear a mask? Trump's response. Um, I had one on before. I, I wore one in his, in his back area, but I didn't want to give the press the pleasure of seeing it. Now, the problem with that is that we caught him dead to rights line because two camera crews were actually back in the back area with him. You see the board executives all masked up. And, of course, you get to see him with, wait for it, no mask. Anyway, um, on today's subject and kind of related to it, uh, I also wanted to bring this up. My good friend and colleague, Nico Lang, from NBC um, out and uh, Vice did a piece up today. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey and uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin sent a letter to Health and Human Secretaries, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Elazar, asking him specifically why we don't have numbers on how COVID-19 is affecting LGBTQI people. Now, Karen Oakham and myself at the Los Angeles Blade have asked the same question of L.A. County supervisors. I've asked Governor Newsom. I had a telephone conversation uh, with Dr. Sophia Angel, who's director of public for the entire state of California. And we don't have a good answer to that yet. And the reason this is important is because there are specific needs and specific things for the LGBTQI community, especially with our elderly and uh, folks that are, you know, HIV positive and some who have respiratory uh, illnesses and other things. And we need to know these sort of things. Yeah, during the great pandemic, the Reagan administration and even into the Bush era and even part of the Clinton administration, there was an erasure of the LGBTQI community when it came down to statistics in the age crisis. And here we are 30 years later and we're seeing it again, only this time with COVID-19. So the difference is I think a lot more of us in the press are starting to ask the difficult questions to try and get the answers. And as a direct result, we have two members of the Senate that have now queried health and human uh, services secretary Elzer on this as to okay what gives us this um, right to our listeners this is kind of important and I'm really the reason I'm bringing this up to our listeners you know you guys are a very very important demographic you need to be counted you need to be you know stood up for so um, regardless of what state you are in or territory of the United States um, call your local health department find out whether or not they are taking metric data uh, for LGBTQI people, and if they're not, ask them why. Call your governor's office. Call your state directors of public health, uh, and and do the same thing. It's terribly, terribly, terribly important, okay, that we get this done. Um, now, in regards to data, data collection, and metrics, Rob, as you know, I have been working on a story for the Los Angeles Blade that deals specifically with the subject matter we're going to be talking about today. I noticed that in all of the notifications from all over the state of California that I wasn't seeing anything in terms 
of these plans for allowances for LGBTQI plus youth. We were seeing things for special education needs. We were seeing things for, you know, students coming from, you know, backgrounds of, you know, lesser than, you know, the state was rolling out an effort to get them Chromebooks to make sure that Wi-Fi access was out there. You know, so we saw all these efforts, particularly by the Los Angeles uh, Unified School District, which is actually the second largest school district in the country, uh, to make allowances. But we weren't seeing anything for LGBTQI youth. Mind you, the exception to that rule ended up being the Burbank School District. Now, why is this important? And, 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 and this is really kind of the same reasoning with the data metrics that we have with the health. LGBTQI youth, oftentimes, particularly those in foster care, which is, is something that I'll be talking to Jason about, so will you, their only safe space, their only place where they feel comfortable is in a school setting, be it because of counselors, teachers, GSAs, other LGBTQI plus youth, or any other responsible adults, or just the fact that they're in a school environment and they're away from something at home that's probably less than favorable. So it's kind of important that these school districts take this into consideration when they're enacting these programs. To date, I have not gotten an answer from California's superintendent of public instruction, Thurmont, on this very issue, nor have I gotten it back from L.A. County uh, Unified School District, and I haven't heard it back from Gavin Newsom's office, the governor's office. So this is an issue that needs to be addressed, uh, and with that, I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, Brody, a few weeks ago on our show, we had um, the senator who was introducing a bill in the assembly, um, or the assemblyman, rather, um, that mm-hmm. it was to collect data on LGBT people in California. Where is the, what is the status on that bill? There was a, okay, uh, there was a conference meeting that took place between members of the LGBTQ caucus and Gavin Newsom and uh Dr. Uh, Sonia Angel, Director of Public Health, and uh, Dr. Galley, who is California's uh, Health and Human Services Secretary. And they were in a process of working up uh, a way to do it, um, which was an insufficient answer as far as Senator Weiner and the members of the caucus were concerned. So what uh, Weiner's office told me is they're going to push uh, Governor Newsom for an executive order, and at the same time, uh, as you know, uh, the senator was telling us that he's introduced the bill. The thing about that is that I had made some phone calls um, in the process of working on the story for uh, Assistant Karen. She did the data story for the L.A. Blade, and we discovered that coroner's offices, five of them in different parts of the state of California, told us, yeah, that's no problem. We can do it. You know, And it's like, okay, well, they can deal with dead LGBTQI people. What about the live ones? Dr. Angel right. told me that in a phone conversation I had with her, that they would be able to take care of this sort of thing uh, by doing the contact tracing and everything for COVID. And I pointed out to her, that right now, the only question that's being asked that we're aware of, which mirrors the question on the United States census form, is the gender of your spouse. And there is an allowance there for a same uh, sex, you know, partner, but that's it. That's the only question. So it, it, queer, the non-binary, the trans, the lesbian, anybody that doesn't identify, you know, in one slot or the other, they're not there. Particularly troublesome is the fact that we don't know about our trans folk. 
And, and you know, they have a – there's another side to that which has to do with the fact that most of them do, in fact, have, you know, health issues that needed to be addressed. And so, you know, this is where we're at with it now. Now, Weiner's pushing Gavin, the governor, to, you know, put out an executive order to order this, uh, this data collection to take place. At this point, we don't know where it sits, and the governor's office has not responded to emails and requests from us uh, onto status. All right. And of course, there's um, going to be something that's not not going to be visible even with that kind of recording, which is the medical issues that are not being dealt with because people are not going into the doctor's offices, particularly for HIV tests, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there mm-hmm. are a lot of sideline issues um, that are going on. <clears throat> with that, though, um, I'd like to shift us back to our topic of the day, which is LGBT youth. Um, and I want to uh, bring on Jason onto the show. Uh, Jason's been advocating for the health, safety, and well-being of LGBT communities and people affected by HIV and AIDS for nearly two decades. As I mentioned, he is the co-author of the book, um, uh, LGBT Youth in America's Schools, uh, which he co-authored with Sean, Dr. Sean Cahill. Um, the book has received a, quite a number of accolades. Um, he is also a dad, um, and he and his husband uh, adopted uh, the openly gay 11-year-old, his 11-year-old son, in 2018. And um, thus have also, be- he is come about or he has has been led to become a fierce advocate for ending the disproportionate uh, representation of LGBTQ youth in the foster system. And with that, I want to welcome Jason to the show. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much. Hello, Robin Brody. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Thank you for, for joining us. So, Jason, um, you heard kind of what we've been been talking about. Um, one thing, when I read your book, um, your book really painted sort of a different picture of schools than Brody was describing in that um, you kind of highlighted, rightly so, the danger to LGBTQ um, students in schools. Has the environment shifted and um, – what are your thoughts on what Brody was talking about in terms of LGBTQ kids who are actually kind of more in danger by sheltering in place? I think the real answer to that is it depends. Um, you know, uh, there, there are certain uh, large cities, um, you know, people might think that uh, New York City, San Francisco, where there would be school systems that have adopted policies and procedures that make them not not only you know safe but uh, welcome and affirming um, of LGBTQ youth. Um, but you know, I uh, you mentioned um, my son. Uh, you know, he came out at his middle school in New York City in sixth grade about a, a week after he started. And what followed after was a nightmare that I never predicted would have happened in a place like New York City. Uh, And we eventually had to emergency transfer him out of that middle school into a different New York City middle school because of how much bullying and harassment he was experiencing 
based on his um, sexual orientation and gender expression. So, um, you know, I, I, I learned, you know, in a very sad and, and hard way for my family and my son that it's one thing to have a, a law, um, it's one thing to have outspoken leaders who support LGBTQ youth, but the implementation and application of those policies is just as important. Yeah, it, I mean, that, that leads into a question for you that uh, is a little bit off of our our main topic, but um, it's one that comes to mind a lot for me. Uh, you know, in a lot of the religious freedom um, arguments and philosophy and, and political um, agenda that's going on, um, in different, different states there are religious-oriented um, placement agencies that want to only place um, their foster kids that they have access to um, in, in non-LGBT families, um, you know, in, in only the religious homes, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the, the pushback on that um, is often around the rights of people like you and I. I, I also adopted my kids through foster care. And, um, you Thank know, you. it's like, well, it's not it's not fair to – to foster care, you know, LGBT foster care parents. And while that is somewhat true, although I, I, I still know, like in California, um, you know, the foster care system is still placing, you know, with, with uh, equality across the board. It's just some of these sideline agencies that might be affected by this. The thing that really comes to mind for me, the big red flag that no one ever brings up is if the kids that these places are placing are LGBT themselves, they are automatically being forced into homes that are not going to be supportive, that are not going to be recognized. And, and I, it scares me when I hear about what you just shared about the situation with your son, that if you were one of those homes instead of who you are, his situation could have been, horrendous and tragic and horrible. I just want to get your feedback on that. Yeah, I, I shudder to think what would have happened to my son if uh, his case happened to have been handled by a um, you know, state-licensed nonprofit that discriminated like that. You know, it, even though, fortunately, he was in a place where um, there is a state law um, uh, preventing discrimination based on sexual orientation in, um, uh, in terms of parents who want to foster or adopt from the foster system, he still experienced, um, you know, things that should never have happened. In, uh, he was in um, six foster homes in the four years that he was in foster care. And uh, oh. he says that three of them were uh, highly religious. And, you know, one of the stories he shares that's just so hard, hard for me to even talk about out loud is um, one foster uh, parent who, when he would come home from school, would say, how many times did you act like a girl today in school, right? And, oh, my God. And we, we live in a country that refused to sign the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Child. We live in a country that um, is, is moving dangerously towards a, a, depth, a, a depth of minority tyranny that, that – these religious freedom laws are actually actually saying that an individual's right to believe what they want is is more important 
than the negative effects on um, the greater population or other individuals. And, uh, you know, uh, this, this trend is only making me and my husband focus even more on, you know, what, what we can do. Because at any given moment in this country, there are 140,000 kids in the foster system who are um, ready for adoption, legally separated or uh, judges just waiting for an adoptive family to come along to um, uh, legally make them available for adoption. And, and 20% or more of those kids are LGBT. Uh, and even though we know about 5% of the youth population in general is LGB, and, and then it's a little harder to, to know for certain on um, trans and gender nonconforming. So four times as many kids in foster system than in the general population. You know, why is that happening? And, you know, what can we do to, to, to stop it? Um, and there are clear implications to, you know, the broader issue of safety in school because if, if a child's home is not a safe place for them to be and if their uh, school is not a safe place for them to be, then it's no wonder that, you know, our youth are two to three times more likely to report seriously uh, attempting suicide. And, um, you know, I... I'm so, to be honest, angry at our national LGBT rights organizations for not focusing on the needs of our children. Well, you, know, you get I, an amen I totally agree with me you. on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I particularly feel that way because, uh, you know, a lot of my advocacy through marriage equality and writing and, and um, you know, being published in terms of fighting for our rights to have families and, you know, both the legal protection and soci sociological protections and cultural protections. Um, one of the, the, I think, the uh, not unintended, but consequences of us gaining those rights and those, that visibility is that it is made an environment where the kids, our kids, the kids of America, um, are coming out earlier and are finding recognizing themselves earlier. Um, you kind of allude to this in your book um, where you noted that in the 70s and 80s, um, people were coming out, that men were coming out at, from ages mostly average 19 to 21, women 21 to 23. But more recent um, uh, studies have shown that they're coming out about or having awareness of themselves around 11 to 13 and coming out around 15. And I have a feeling that if we looked even more recently, that number has probably even gone younger. And I think that has to do with our progress as adults. But once we have created this environment, and, and I'm not apologizing for that, to your point, we need to be protective of the people who are most vulnerable, which is these children who are coming out in environments where it is lethal, dangerous, um, you know, and, and abusive um, if they do so. Um, what, are, what have you seen in terms of that, that coming out younger aspect, and what do you think the cause of it is? Um, the, the cause of coming out younger or the, the cause of the, the trouble that youth are facing when they do, or both? 
Well, well, both, <laughs> but mostly sure. the, the, the why? Why are they coming out younger? First of all, but then yeah, definitely the, the second as well. Yeah, well, you know, I think you summed it up. You know, uh, in, in all of the the gains that we have made, which are are so important to celebrate and be grateful for. Um, I think for uh, youth, one of the most important has been simply been increased visibility. You know, when I, I was a teenager, and I, I would point to the same age as, as my son when I first really became aware that there was something different about me, but I, I had never met that I know of a single person who identified as um, LGBT. Their, uh, you know, LGBT characters on television were not out. They were just the funny neighbor who, you know, mm-hmm. made people laugh because, uh, you know, he was effeminate while carrying a cat. Um, and I, you know, and I would argue that those uh, those stereotypes actually are can, in some some ways, be hurtful when it, it, kids are, are taught, well, that you know, being gay is a joke uh, only. Um, and uh, you know, now for my son, um, you know, he can watch television, go to the movies. Uh, you know, I mean, in particular, he's unique in that he has two dads. Um, but uh, his experience outside of that is not all that different. Now, why aren't we ready? Well, again, his experience in a, in a middle school in New York City, of all places, uh, is, um, uh, I, I think, a case study in that, because I, I don't believe that any of the teachers or administrators in his school you know, wanted him to experience harassment and bullying or had some inherent uh, you know, homophobic viewpoint against him or uh, myself and my husband. But, you know, I'll never forget the first time that my husband and I were called into the school because of what Derek was, was, what my son was experiencing. Um, And we sat across from the sixth grade dean who was very welcoming but said, oh, well, you know, if he just didn't talk about being gay in school, then this wouldn't happen. Mm. And, you know, my jaw dropped to the floor and, you know, and of course, as parents, we need to teach our kids the difference between talking about, you know, overt sexual behavior in, in you know, environments like school where, where that shouldn't happen versus things are, that are about identity or, or world history or population. And o- over the course of the nearly two years that he attended that school, we came to realize that they, they in, the, in the middle of New York City, had never had anybody come and do an LGBT 101. Um, you know, in, in the middle of a city that probably has the most gay-straight alliances next to cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles, never even considered that that was a possibility. And um, right. one of the, the teachers said to me uh, at a meeting, you know, I've, I've been teaching for uh, 11 years, 600 students a year, and I've never met someone your son's age who's come out. And, that, you know, and that says everything. They were just unprepared. Yeah, no, it's um, I. It's kind of amazing. Uh, we, my sons and I, are in Santa Cruz, California, and we live in kind of this wonderful bubble, in a way. I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't that kind of behavior going around. I'm sure there is somewhere, but um, we have uh, over 20 years of uh, something called the Queer Youth Leadership Awards which goes from high school to high school here every year it's presented at a different high school and it is a huge event so i mean it is 
in the schools it has become part of the culture to understand you know the the diversity and um, you know they have been certainly blessed by that they have gay friends they have um, you know gender fluid friends they you know it's like it is it is not stigmatized I mean and I, I have to forget or have to remember that we're in a bubble that that isn't everywhere um, Jason, what what um, what are you seeing in terms of the result of the shelter in place on LGBT youth? Even even though, to your point, many schools are not that affirming of it, um, is is there effect of people these kids being out of school and in, and in home environments where they may be oppressed? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I, from, from my work on the issue, I, I know that, but, um, you know, one, one of the ways that I became reconnected with Brody and, and I'm here now is through an article that my son and I were interviewed for that also interviewed three other, uh, youth in New York city schools who are out at school, but can't be out at home. And, um, you know, the, one of the prime reasons that up to 40% of homeless minors in large cities like New York and LA are um, LGBT uh, is because uh, they're kicked out by parents who don't accept them. Um, and if a parent, and then, you know, and I, I still consider myself a relatively new parent, it's been about three years now in total. Um, if a parent could, could somehow, uh, separate themselves, feel, feel such strong feelings of anger or hatred against their own child that they would kick them out onto the street without, uh, without thought, which is just completely unfathomable to me as a parent. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, what does it say about the depth to which we have work to do in our culture and our society? Um, and, and to be honest, I, I do know what that's like from the other side because um, you know, I, my, I grew up in an um, evangelical Christian home, primarily with my mother and stepfather, and they first took me to you know, what we would now say is a form of ex-gay therapy when I was 13, and then uh, from age 16 to 19. And when the therapy didn't work, surprise, at 19, while I was in college, they kicked me out of the home. Now, you know, I had a lot of privilege then. And I was able to, to care for myself, and I was older. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying my experience is, is anywhere close to what might happen to a younger, you know, trans person of color in New York City. Um, but I think that the way to change is not through necessarily passing a law or um, or winning a court case. But I think the way to change is, is more about finding the common values that underlie what links people together across culture and communities. Some may be expressed in, in a religion, you know, others not. But how, how do we link to people and help them see and understand that we all share the common value that our children should be nurtured and safe and loved and protected? And that kicking your child out of the home is a complete and total violation of those cultural values that we share. No, absolutely. 
Um, one thing you talk about in the book is um, cyberbullying and, you know, um, that, that kind of environment. Um, in the shelter-in-place, is there also kind of a silver lining in that these kids can find their people online in kind of in secret um, through their social media? Yes, uh, online online communities are critical to um, ensuring that uh, LGBT youth who aren't in safe homes um, don't also don't feel a, a sense of, of isolation and lack of access to the outside world. But um, oftentimes, and in, in particular for growing up in um, facing socioeconomic uh, challenges or housing challenges. Um, you know, there, there isn't a device they can use that is private. Um, some may even share a, a single room with a family so that there isn't a place to go where you could use that device uh, in private. And, and so in some ways, the, the thing, that the, the technology that can help um, support and, and feed LGBTQ youth who are in unsafe situations could also be the very thing if it gets found out that could lead to abuse and homelessness. Right, right. No, great point. Um, one thing you talked about in the book, um, or actually you acknowledged in the book at the time when you wrote it, was that there isn't wasn't um, a lot of research on trans kids' realizations coming out, um, letting their needs be known uh, to their families. Has that gotten better? Is there more research now available? And if so, what what are you seeing? Well, there is, and you know, in general, a, a lot of it just affirms what's common sense, right? That we that we um, listen to our children when they explain to us how they feel uh, about their gender, um, and that we guide them along the way to prevent them from harm and help them understand for for themselves you know, over childhood and, and teenage years or how long it takes, you know, who they are in a loving and accepting way. But, you know, uh, if, if uh, LG, LGB youth are coming out at, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, we now have uh, TGNC youth coming out in kindergarten. And, uh, you know, if a middle school isn't ready to support LGBT youth, then, you know, kindergarten absolutely isn't. And now we're seeing um, court cases where, uh, you know, parents in disagreement over providing uh, psychiatric or medical support for their uh, trans children, you know, the, the right of, of a, a parent who supports their child to ensure that they have the right access to medical care is being taken away. Yeah, that, that's huge. And I've, I've talked to, interviewed, written about um, numerous families where, the child was making their gender known around age three and four, and not just in a minor way, but emphatically informing their parents of who they are. And to your point, it's, you know, it is really critical that the parents step in at that age and support the path. I mean, they don't even have to do anything medically um, with the child. But it's, I mean, to the, 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 what they've been finding in terms of the mental health results is astronomical, the difference. And, um, yeah, those, those fights that are going on, and they are 
unfortunately falling into the hands of people who want to use them in terms of part of the political divide. Um, what, what, um, what is your prescription for dealing with that, that, that issue that's going on right now? Um, politically? Well, uh, you know, and legally. the importance uh, and legally. Well, uh, you know, law and its implementation often starts with the people who are responsible for making or implementing it, right? And so we've seen, to be cliche, what, what a difference an uh, election makes. Um, and the, the, the challenge is that I think it's more than just get out and vote, right? Like, you know, I know and fully believe that uh, people who share common values of love and acceptance and protection for LGBT youth and adults outnumber those who don't, but those who don't cheat. And they are willing to do anything to suppress the vote in order to win. And I don't think that progressives are fighting hard enough against that. I, I, I'm at a place right now in my life mm-hmm. where I, I can no longer just, you know, do the, the work and the things that I do and try to have faith that, you know, good will win out over evil every time. Because in that time, how many people, how many of our kids are being hurt and, and you know, even murdered, especially in the TGNC community? And I, I think it's time to play hardball. It's time to stop reacting to what, Trump and the sycophants say, and put them on the defensive through aggressive, mm-hmm. you know, honest, good value messaging. And, and I have yet to see that, with the exception of the folks from the Lincoln Project who are Republican. No, I, I agree with you. In fact, uh, I, w- I was just thinking about that when, as you were talking, that because you know my experience with with uh, gay dads in the LGBT or in, I'm sorry, in the marriage equality era as we were fighting for the right for marriage. And, and I did a lot of writing at that time um, to support that, you know, to argue for marriage equality. And I put the, the adoption of my two sons out there publicly for people to see what a gay dad looked like and what that was all about. Um, and people embrace that, you know, in terms of the argument for marriage equality. It feels like, in a certain extent, not just with progressives, but even within our own community, that once achieving marriage equality, that a large part of the community kind of, you know, dusted up their hands, went, okay, that's it, we did it, yay, yay for us, off we go, Um, and not looking at the vulnerable, looking at the kids, looking at you know, um, the things where we can affect change. Um, now, granted, some of this is new. I mean, some of these lawsuits that are coming up in family courts are are new to everybody. But to your point, there doesn't seem to be the level of outrage that there has been in the past of when, you know, marriage equality was being taken away before it was even granted and that people were where every relationship was threatened by the, the oppression of it. Um, how do we get that sense of that outrage happening? Um, I think right now people need to be connected to what they can experience and believe is a winning strategy and a, a winning voice. Um, you know, and I, I think 
one of the, the reasons why other candidates besides Vice President Biden uh, rose so quickly during the primary season is because they expressed that voice. Um, and I, I hope that uh, in the coming campaign, you know, Vice President Biden will, will do that as well. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I think a lot of people, and, you know, I hear among my group of friends, we're, we're exhausted. We're, we're having a hard time finding hope. Um, we're having a hard time finding a way that, uh, you, you know, the, the, the people that we love and care about are no longer put in harm's way to the extent they are under a Trump administration after this next election. And, and that, that sense of being defeated, that sense of being outspoken, uh, uh, other people being so outspoken that your voice is no longer heard, or cheating to the, in the system to the extent that what you feel you can do as an individual or even as a group to create change um, uh, isn't going to, to matter, um, you know, that needs to, to change as well. Mm -hmm. You, um, one of the things you also wrote about in the book was you went into really a really good description of the challenges for LGBT youth of color. Um, can you kind of describe that um, tri-cultural um, experience? And um, for those of us who are out of touch with that, um, you know, living in, in, I don't mean to use the cliche, but kind of the white privileged world, um, how can we become more aware and also for the kids that are in that tricultural um, experience, is are they off? Even are they even more adversely affected by the COVID nineteen shelter in place um, than other kids? In your opinion? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, to, to briefly explain what at, the, at that time, and what we're talking in in um, the book was published in two thousand twelve, and I think there are a lot of people from within those communities who are better spokespeople than I. But what we meant by the tricultural experience is that you have um, someone who is uh, a minor who has very little autonomy and rights, who is also um, LGBT and experiences discrimination based on that, and then also is uh, a person of color or uh, coming from a uh, ethnicity or religious background that um, is also discriminated against, that those three overlap and become um, that tricultural uh, experience. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you raised the, the issue of, of race and, and us living uh, in a, a white bubble, because I think that's the other answer to, or other part of the earlier question about what can we do to wake people up? Uh, you know, uh, uh, I had been working in the uh, LGBT rights movement for 15 years and did not know about the disproportionate representation of LGBT youth and youth of color in the foster system. I didn't even know the, the sheer number of kids who were in the foster system until I was directly connected and linked to it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we need to uh, use the privilege that we have to uplift, not speak for our, but uplift voices who can talk about their experiences in, in, in broad um, and, uh, and public ways. Now, uh, the other part of your question, um, are we seeing um, similar issues disproportionately impact uh, people of color and youth of color in the COVID pandemic? And, you know, absolutely yes. Um, you know, I live in 
uh, New York City, and I, I work for uh, an HIV and AIDS services organization. And so we know that over time, the uh, uh, AIDS epidemic has concentrated among the, those in our society who face the most discrimination, have the least opportunity um, to, to um, live the kind of life that every single individual should be able to have, uh, uh, secure housing, uh, access to a safe and good education, food, um, you know, uh, employment that pays well and provides benefits that enables people to, to live. And now we're seeing the same exact thing in New York City with the COVID pandemic, where it is in the, the neighborhoods of central Queens, where a lot of um, immigrants of color, often undocumented, are packed into, um, you know, small apartments where there was the most, uh, you know, highest rates of infection and death similarly um, in the Bronx. And those also happen to be the places where HIV continues to concentrate. If you were to take a, a map and lay the COVID and HIV pandemics on top of each other mm -hmm. in terms of where they're concentrated, you'd see that they overlap very well. Yeah, no, it's, um, <laughs> it's amazing. Brody, did you have... Yeah, I wanted to step in for a second because, uh, and and this has to do along the same lines of talking, uh, specifically to Jason's point about New York City. LGBTQ advocates um, are basically saying that isolation absolutely can lead to worsened mental health, depression, thoughts of suicide uh, for a group that's already at high risk for that. And we're talking here, thirteen to twenty-three year olds. Um, now, one of the things that this COVID thing has done has been removing the kids from an important part of their development in terms of affirming their identities. And that's by spending time with their peers and creating new relationships. Uh, Owen Wynn uh, Ritzenberg, who's the educational service director, coordinator for the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center in New York, uh, made this notation to Chalk Beat New York in the article that Jason referred to earlier. And I'm quoting, um, uh, Owen, we know that for the youth we work with, their peers are their biggest influencers. Uh, school is also their social setting. It is also where they're learning how to be who they are and getting feedback from peers. And now they're cut off from them. In particular, not just only for, you know, kids that are LGBTQI plus in, in homes that, you know, have two parents or you know, our, our single family source. But as Jason's mentioned, and as we know, for the kids that are in foster care in particular, where there's already a sense of instability and there is really kind of not even a real sense of self-worth, this becomes even a larger issue on a larger scale. And I think that one of the things, you know, we need to be paying attention to, and I, and I think Jason would agree with this, is we have to watch that. I had a conversation uh, last week uh, with the Trevor Project, and it was a rather alarming conversation. They have seen a uh, spike in their calls about 75% above the norm that they would get in any given time period. And that's, as you know, the Trevor Project is specifically set up as a suicide prevention and a hotline for LGBTQI plus youth. And to see that kind of a number and to hear that kind of a number is rather distressing. Now, in the city of New York, in the borough of Queens, uh, which Jason was talking about, and we have sections of Los Angeles, 
uh, sections of San Francisco, Denver, and other cities, you have these large Latinx uh, populations in particular, or maybe from sub-Saharan Africa or other places, or even Muslim countries. These kids are in there. They're in places where there's absolutely no affirmation at all whatsoever. Maybe even particularly on a peer basis within their own socioeconomic groups because of either religious, cultural, societal constraints put upon them. Here they are, they're LGBTQI+, so they've got nowhere to turn. Um, and, and I think that moving forward, uh, these are some of the things, you know, that we need to look out for. I, there, there is, in many ways, help out there. We, we have some outstanding organizations uh, that are doing the job on the ground. Uh, the GSAs, Gleason, uh, P-Flag, uh, the Matthew Shepard uh, Foundation, Matthew's Place in Denver, uh, the Tyler Clemente Foundation uh, in New Jersey, which is doing more focus on cyberbullying and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, of course, we have the various LGBTQ centers across the United States uh, that are an invaluable part of this. But I really think, you know, especially for parents like, you know, Jason and Rob and, and you know, you guys, it's even more critically important that we maybe add our voices to that mix and say, look, we need to be a part of this. We need to be a lot more proactive. Uh, And Jason, I agree with you. I think that uh, what I call Gay Incorporated has uh, fallen down on the job with this one. It really has. Rob? Well, yeah, I wanted to, Jason, dovetailing off what Brody was just saying, uh, one of the areas that seems even higher at risk than the general school population of LGBTQ um, students uh, are the ones we've talked about, you know, in your son's experience specifically of being an LGBTQ youth in foster care. Um, Under normal circumstances, and I'm sure you're as aware of this as I am, you know, the social services and, you know, they're underfunded um, and the social workers are overworked. There are, in California, we've got a group called CASA, which are individuals who uh, stay in touch with the kids to get, find out how they are and, and, and be a, a person for them to reach out to. I don't know how that plays out in all states, but it seems to me in the shelter in place that those avenues of communication for those kids are probably shut down to non-existent. Um, is there anything being done in the foster care systems that you know of to reach out to those kids where they, they could be sheltered away, abused, um, you know, and highly susceptible um, and completely off radar right now? Uh, that's so important, Rob. I, I uh, only have you know, anecdotal uh, accounts that I've read, you know, of, of the um, foster and adoption advocacy organizations that regularly, you know, send communications um, where, where they are making a stronger effort to continue to provide the services they did in person virtually. Uh, but, you know, unlike uh, adults, who, unless there's a technology issue, can choose for themselves to participate in a phone call or a video conference. Um, that access is uh, far uh, often determined by uh, a foster parent in this case. And um, you know, if that uh, foster parent is not able to, or uh, has become a foster parent for 
you know, reasons other than looking out for the, the best uh, for the, the child they take into their home, then yes, I, I do believe it was cut off. You know, uh, when this first happened, I was interested in looking at some data to see whether or not there was a uh, spike in the number of children in out-of-home care and foster care in the last recession that we had in 2008 and 2009. And I was surprised to actually find out that the, the number went down, not to not a huge extent, but went down. And, you know, I, and, and I, I should have uh, thought, as you described, Rob, because the, 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 this kind of situation, even more so than a recession, is keeping these child protection systems from doing their jobs. And so, mm-hmm. of course, there are going to be fewer kids in the system, just as, uh, you know, the, the child uh, uh, abuse reporting mechanisms are reporting a decrease. It doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, even more children than normal who are in harm that need to be, you know, protected from an unsafe home. It just means that we don't know about it and that we can't serve them. And, you know, years down, down as, as we look back on this time and see all the different ways that the COVID pandemic was harmful to people, you know, there will be an, a, a portion of an entire generation of children who are, are affected because, they weren't. They didn't have access to the the systems government put in place to protect them. Yeah, it's it's um, it's concerning and and you know um, and horrible. Um, one area we haven't touched on yet is um, homeless LGBT youth, which obviously make up a higher proportion of homeless youth than the per capita of the United States. I mean, it's a, like forty percent. Um, what are you seeing as a result of COVID-19 on that population? I think that it depends on where they're located. Um, you know, uh, in New York City, uh, fortunately, the, the needs of youth are taken into account when what is considered an, an essential service and able to operate and, and not close down. Um, uh, and so, you know, I know that organizations like uh, – the Ali Fournay Center, founded by Carl Siciliano, who is one of my personal heroes, um, you know, it is only increasing what it's uh, doing to um, help youth. But um, I think that also, uh, to, to jump back to where we were before, youth who are, are now stuck in homes where it's not safe to be themselves, being stuck in them for so long creates more opportunities where there might be um, unsafe interactions with their uh, uh, caregivers or parents that could result in them becoming homeless. Um, Jason, as we talked about before, one of the avenues that that youth have when they are in spaces that are not safe and they're not out and um, that type of thing is to go online or go on their smartphones and possibly even listen to this podcast. Um, if we do have youth listening in, what would your message to them be? Well, first and foremost, that uh, you're not alone uh, and that you are amazingly resilient. You know, in, in all of the, the, the news we see on the, the things that are, are really negatively impacting uh, LGBT youth, we, we ought too often forget or don't focus on the even larger proportion who are resilient and find ways to thrive. 
And I would encourage you to find a source of support and hold on to that source. If it's something that is uh, online, if it's a friend that you've come out to at school that uh, you can speak with, uh, do it carefully. Um, because I, I think our, our movement has focused so much on come out, come out, wherever and whenever, then we, mm-hmm. we haven't changed society to make sure that when, those, when you do come out, there's a, a safe space for you. So uh, it may be better for you to not come out as hard as that might be at home and to be more careful so that the, the, what might be a harder time today you can get through that to the time when you can be who you are. Brilliant. Wonderfully said. Um, Jason, what, what have we not asked you today that we should have asked? Well, I, I actually really like to, to, to um, uh, try to end on a, a more upbeat and, and talk about these resiliency factors because uh, one of the ways that um, we can help uh, deal with the, the um, uh, over-representation of LGBT youth and, you know, drug abuse and homelessness and um, sexual assault and sexual abuse uh, is to focus on what we know about the resiliency factors that other youth experience that helps protect them from that. And, you know, uh, another hero of mine is Caitlin Ryan from the Family Acceptance Project at UCSF. And, you know, she's found that, that uh, you know, even among families, where um, there may be, for religious reasons, uh, lack of uh, understanding or acceptance around um, sexual orientation, gender identity issues, for a family to simply just not openly express that to their child could mean the difference between life and death. And we know that um, uh, at uh, our schools, even though teachers who may be supportive and maybe a place where uh, LGBTQ students can go to find that support, uh, they are doing more work to reach out. You know, I, I'm uh, uh, so glad to learn from a uh, group on uh, Facebook of teachers uh, who are um, GSA uh, supporters at their school. And I was so moved by one who was talking about how she is making an even stronger effort to reach out to the kids that she's met and, and knows uh, who may need that extra bit of support. Um, you know, we also know that when people, uh, when youth know other, know of LGB, other LGBTQ people, whether they see, you know, real representations uh, in the media or positive representations um, in, in the news, that that is a, a, another resiliency factor. Um, you know, also Jason, California. I, I, I hate to cut you, hate to cut you off, but we are literally out of time. I want to thank you so much for being on with us today. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, Jason's book is LGBT Youth in America's Schools. I want to thank um, him for everything he does across the board. And uh, thank Brody for brilliant co-hosting. We will be back here again next week. Also listen to Out in Santa Cruz Saturday nights. That can be heard on www.ksco.com at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, For those of us that rated LGBT radio, Thank you for listening, and we will be back again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 